Hello, everybody. I'm Warren Smith coming to you from Charlotte, North Carolina. And I'm Natasha Smith coming to you this week from Boise, Idaho. And we'd love to welcome you to the Ministry Watch podcast. On today's program, pro-abortion activists disrupt a church service in Houston. And we have details of a bizarre story that we've reported on previously. It's the story of a Christian ministry that allegedly defrauded the payroll protection program of millions of dollars. We begin today with news from a prominent church in Louisiana. Yeah, a Louisiana church led by the spokesman for the Conservative Baptist Network, which claims that the Southern Baptist Convention has become too liberal, has been ordered to turn over nearly a decade's worth of financial records to former members of that church. In a pair of court rulings, members of the First Baptist Church of Bossier, Louisiana, accused their pastor, Brad Jerkovitz, of diverting to the Conservative Baptist Network funds that were supposed to go to support missionaries. They also alleged that Jerkovitz blocked them from seeing church financial records in violation of Louisiana nonprofit law and that the pastor illegally changed the church's bylaws. Judge Charles Smith of the 26th Judicial Court in Bossier Parish ruled that the church had to turn over financial records dating back to 2013. Those records include bank statements, W-2 statements, paid invoices, purchase orders, bank deposits, and transfers. Yeah, the church was also ordered to turn over details of staff housing allowances, the names of staffers holding church credit cards and cell phones, and any loan documents or disclosure agreements related to the church. The ruling is the latest development in the long-running feud at the church between Jerkovich and a group of members over finances and bylaws at First Baptist. And according to the complaint filed in Louisiana court in mid-May, the feud began last summer after a group of members sent a letter to Jerkovitz with a list of concerns, including staff turnover and a lack of financial transparency. The letter led Jerkovitz to send an angry email in response to these dissident members saying, you either trust and follow the leadership or not, according to the complaint. Now, Jerkovich later agreed to allow the church members to see church records, provided they sign a non-disclosure agreement. After signing the agreement, the two sides couldn't agree on what records would be available for the review. This ruling answered that question. Yeah, also at issue here, changes made to the church's bylaws in 2014, which gave Jerkovitz the ability to remove church members from the congregation, which had previously been a decision that could only be made by the church's board of directors. And and by the way, I should add here that regardless of which side you fall out on, on the uh, Conservative Baptist Network and the SBC, Ministry Watch's position is that the use of non-disclosure agreements and centralizing the power in the hands of a single man, the pastor, are all practices that Ministry Watch discourages and practices that we have seen lead to scandal elsewhere in the past. Our next story involves a Korean church in Illinois. A Korean church located near Champaign-Urbana, campus of the University of Illinois, that came under fire last year for allegations of ongoing sexual misconduct, have terminated an independent investigation before its completion. 
Yeah, Godly Response to Abuse in the Christian Environment, the acronym is GRACE, and that's how the organization is better known, is an organization that was hired by Covenant Fellowship Church to look into the allegations against the church and its former head pastor, Min Joshua Chung. Now, Grace said in a statement that all that remained in the investigation was a minimal number of interviews, primarily with the leadership of the church, but that they had been informed by Covenant Fellowship Church that the assessment would not continue. Grace issued a statement saying that this termination effectively halts their work at this time. Yeah, the statement by Grace also said, we know that this may cause pain for many people, and we deeply regret that CFC has chosen this path. We have encouraged them to see this important work through to completion. We pray that CFC reconsiders this course of action and chooses to re-engage with Grace for completion of this independent assessment. Orrin, in the past, you've written that too often churches and ministries do not have the expertise or the will to investigate themselves. Is this another example of that? Well, it's kind of hard to know because we can't see fully inside, um, you know, the dynamics between grace and the church, but it sure does seem that that's the case. Once again, it took an outside journalist to bring these problems to light. We first found out about the problems at CFC because of an investigation by the National Public Radio Station in the Chicago area, WBEZ. Uh, That report came out last year, and social media posts by past members portrayed Covenant Fellowship Church and Chung as fostering a misogynistic environment that included sexual mistreatment and oppression of women. And that's why this decision to terminate Grace's work, Grace again being an independent investigator, is particularly troubling. So what happens next? Well, Chung, who founded the church in 1990 on the campus of the University of Illinois at Champaign-Urbana, announced in the summer of 2019 that he would be transitioning out of the head pastor role and a team of associate pastors would lead the church. But in May of 2021, a little over a year ago, CFC cut all ties with him. Now, that whistleblower group is continuing to put pressure on the church to take more action. So I doubt that this episode is over. Uh, I should add that also in question here is Covenant Fellowship Church's status within the Presbyterian Church of America. Um, as I, as you said earlier, whenever we were kind of setting this story up, Natasha, CFC began as a campus fellowship, but it evolved into a church over time and was in the process of what they call particularizing or becoming a full-blown standalone church within the PCA. So far, no word on whether these new controversies will affect that status. Warren, our next story is one you were among one of the first to report on back in 2020. It's the story of a ministry that calls itself Aslan International Ministry, but it's hard to tell what sort of ministry work the group actually does. Yeah, it's a kind of a bizarre story. Uh, I'll kind of pick it up midway because the ministry's been around for a while. But in September of 2020, the federal government seized more than $7.6 million in assets as part of a civil asset forfeiture proceeding by the United States Secret Service for money laundering and bank fraud offenses. And another nearly $900,000 was seized from a title company as part of a fraudulent 
immaculate property purchase in Florida. A verified complaint filed in December of 2020 explained the case facts, and that's when I first reported the case, really close to a year and a half ago. What happened with this case since then? Well, that's one of the strange things, Natasha. It appears that very little has actually happened, at least little that we can see externally, publicly from the outside. Despite the fact that federal investigators had seized nearly $9 million in funds from the Edwards family, the family behind Aslan. Now, as I said, in 2005, when Aslan was originally incorporated, it was in Cincinnati, Ohio. But the people listed as officers, all of them were members of the Edwards family. According to the court filing, operations were moved to Florida in 2018. Yeah, and that's when things start to get really interesting. In April of 2020, during the beginning stages of the COVID pandemic, Aslan filed originally for just $6.9 million. I say just 6.9. That's a lot of money. But when they made their application to First Home Bank in St. Petersburg, Florida, their application claimed that the organization was headquartered in Orlando, had 480 employees, and an average monthly payroll of more than $2.7 million. Wow, that would make it one of the largest Christian ministries in the nation. Well, exactly right, it would. Uh, If that loan application was true, Aslan would rank about 150th on the Ministry Watch 1000 list of the largest ministries in the nation. And it would have been a simple matter to get a Form 990 to confirm the size and the scope of that kind of a ministry. So surely the loan was turned down? Well, no. Not only did the bank approve the loan, but it told Aslan that it qualified for even more money than they had requested. The bank eventually gave Aslan about $8.4 million. Wow, that is unbelievable. So what's happening now? Well, there are a lot of details in this story that are kind of, you know, too many to recount here. Though I will say that our reporter, Kim Roberts, who is also a lawyer, poured over the court documents and wrote a pretty compelling blow-by-blow timeline for the story. I really recommend that to you. It's on the Ministry Watch website. And to whet your appetite for reading that story even a little bit more, I'll say this. The Edwards family was on the verge of getting away with this when the entire family got pulled over for speeding on Interstate 75 down in Florida. Now, they told the cops that they were headed to a conference in Texas, but when the police kind of started questioning them further, they couldn't give details of the conference. They couldn't agree on where it was and all kinds of other stuff. So these policemen got a little suspicious, and they noticed that there were, in addition to suitcases, computers, bags of shredded documents, a document shredder, and other material in the van. So they uh, seized the documents and lots of other information, and they're now using that information procured from a traffic stop to build the case against them. So what's happening next? Well, it's a good question. So far, we have not been able to identify that any criminal charges have been filed against the Edwards, but these sorts of cases are pretty complex. They take a lot of time because there are a lot of money transfers between banks all over the country. So it appears that the investigation is ongoing and we'll, of course, have updates for you in the future. Warren, we need to take a break here. 
But when we return, we'll have the story of a well-known Dallas church that has been improperly diverting donor funds. I'm Natasha Smith, along with my co-host Warren Smith. We'll be back after this short break. Hello, everyone. I'm Brittany with Save the Storks. Save the Storks is a pro-life ministry passionate about inspiring the world to reimagine the pro-life movement by serving and valuing every life. Save the Storks partners with pregnancy centers all across the U.S. to own and operate a stork bus to offer free ultrasounds and pregnancy tests to women in unplanned pregnancies. Stork buses park near college campuses, abortion clinics, shopping centers, and serve rural communities that lack medical care. Save the Storks is pleased to be the sponsor of the Ministry Watch podcast. For more information about our life-saving organization and how we partner with pregnancy resource centers around the country, go to savethestorks.com. That's savethestorks.com. Welcome back. I'm Natasha Smith with my co-host Warren Smith, and you're listening to the Ministry Watch podcast. Our next story is the one I promised before the break. It's a well-known Dallas church that is having to deal with the consequences of a forensic audit. The church has a foundation, uh, and it's associated with Park City's Presbyterian Church, a megachurch in Dallas, Texas, and an investigation by a forensic accounting firm has uncovered what it calls improperly diverted donations. That, according to a report in the Dallas Morning News, Park City's Presbyterian Church Foundation reported an operating loss of nearly $800,000 in its most recent tax filing year, despite having made more than $1.2 million in revenue. The foundation said an unidentified person who had unspecified leadership posts within the group is believed to be responsible. The foundation also did not specify how much money was involved. But what makes this story significant, I think, in part, is that Park Cities is one of the largest churches in Dallas. It's a well-known church. They call it Park Cities because it sits between uh, Highland Park and University Park, two of the most affluent neighborhoods in the city of Dallas. And it's one of the largest churches in the Presbyterian Church in America, the PCA, which has historically been one of the most significant denominations in the evangelical movement over the past 50 years. What happens next? Well, church spokesman David Margulies told the Dallas Morning News that the results of the investigation will be forwarded to the appropriate law enforcement agencies. Uh, Margulies said the foundation's finances and operations are separate from the church, which was founded in 1991 and today has about 5,500 members. He said that the foundation's board has stepped down while the investigation continues. Our next story also involves a Texas church embroiled in a controversy, but this one of a very different kind. Yeah, it is different, and there's a bit of irony associated with this one as well. Uh, But let me tell you some of the facts first. Joel Osteen is kind of famous for avoiding controversy. He's kind of known as, you know, Mr. Happy Feelgood. Though he has said in the past that he is pro-life, he hasn't been outspoken in either his politics or in his pro-life activism. So it's notable that three activists from a Texas pro-abortion group interrupted a service at Joel Osteen's Houston megachurch, Lakewood, last weekend by stripping down to their underwear and shouting, my body, my choice, and overturn row hell no among 
many other epithet-laced slogans during the service itself. The activists were part of a group called Rise Up for Abortion Rights, and they were protesting the possibility of the Supreme Court overturning Roe v. Wade and allowing states to set up their own abortion policies. Do you know why the group targeted Lakewood? Well, Lakewood is a big church. It's a you know, non-denominational evangelical church, one of the largest, in fact, in the country. Uh, typically has more than 20,000 people showing up on a, on a uh, given Sunday. So perhaps it was just an attempt to get publicity. They knew there'd be a lot of people there and they'd get some media coverage. Do you think that reporting on this story helps contribute to their desire for publicity? Yeah, well, you know, it's a good question, and I wrestled with that very question before we posted this story, but here's where I ultimately came out. Yes, it is possible that we could be giving these activists the very publicity that they're seeking, but I think it's also important that pro-life pastors and church leaders know that this is happening, because I should also mention also this week, pro-abortion activists vandalized a pregnancy resource center. They took red paint, and which was obviously meant to symbolize blood, and they wrote the words on the front door and on the sidewalk, if the right to abortion is not safe, then neither are you. I mean, those that language could not be interpreted any other way as an obvious than as an obvious threat. So bottom line here, by deciding to cover this story, uh, I made the decision that it is always better to know than to not know. The Bible says the truth sets us free. Uh, it's not always clear or straightforward uh, to make these kinds of decisions. Part of the truth of this story, though, is that pro-abortion groups will get some notice um, that they might not otherwise have had. I can only hope that our listeners will understand that this story is also a warning, and I think they do need to hear that warning. Because if a church such as Joel Osteen's Lakewood Church can be targeted, a church that is not particularly active politically, a church that doesn't take a strong hand on a strong stand on the issue in other words then probably no church is safe. Warren, our next story is a new development in a story we've been covering for several months. What's the latest? Yeah, police in the Canadian city of Hamilton, Ontario have charged a disgraced former pastor of one of the country's largest churches with sexual assault, Bruxy Cavey who grew the Meeting House into a megachurch with about 20 campuses in the province of Ontario, was charged with one count of sexual assault on May 31st. Now, Cavey had already resigned from the church back in March after an independent investigator found that he had had a years-long sexual relationship with a member of his church who had sought counseling. Police in Hamilton confirmed that the alleged victim was an adult female, but did not say whether it was the same woman who came forward with allegations of sexual misconduct late last year. Yeah, and at the same time, the investigator for the church found that KV had committed sexual harassment and abuse of power, but did not label the misconduct as sexual abuse, which the victim later challenged. Now, Cavey has long hair and tattoos, and because of his unusual look, he has become, over the years, one of Canada's most recognizable church leaders. He became the senior pastor of Upper Oaks Community Church back in 1997, 25 years ago, but that church later changed its name to the Meeting House, which is how we know it today, at one time boasted an attendance of about 5,000 people. Cavey is also the author of a popular book called The End of Religion, Encountering the Subversive Spirituality of Jesus. 
Uh, this church, by the way, is a part of the Be in Christ denomination. It's an Anabaptist denomination that has, in recent months, stripped Cavey of his ministerial credentials. Warren, let's look at one more story before the break. A lot of people know about the shooting at a church in Ames, Iowa. Two women were killed and the shooter then shot himself. And this is a story that hit close to home for you. Yeah, it did. The shooting took place uh, last week at the summer kickoff meeting for a ministry that's called The Salt Company, which is a ministry to college students that's on about 20 campuses, in fact, more than 20 campuses uh, in Iowa and the surrounding region. And it so happens that my sister and brother-in-law live in Des Moines, Iowa, and their family has been involved in The Salt Company ministry for years. In fact, I have a niece on the staff of the ministry. Now, I want to add quickly uh, that they were not in Ames when the shooting took place, but the event has shaken everyone associated with that excellent organization. And because the shooting took place on a Thursday night, I should add, and we record this podcast on Thursday afternoons, we didn't have any notice of that event in our last week's podcast. But I would like to remind our listeners now that uh, there have been uh, a number of events that have happened since then. A memorial service occurred on Friday at Cornerstone Church in Ames, Iowa, which is home to Iowa State University and is sort of the mother church of the Salt Company ministry. That service was very moving, and for those of you who have been troubled by this shooting, by the shooting in Uvalde, Texas, and by other shootings, I recommend that you watch this service online. There's a link to it in our story about the shooting. You can find it right on the front page of our website, ministrywatch.com. Warren, we're going to take another quick break here. But when we return, our weekly lightning round of ministry news. I'm Natasha Smith with my co-host Warren Smith. More in a moment. Hello, everyone. I'm Brittany with Save the Storks. Save the Storks is a pro-life ministry passionate about inspiring the world to reimagine the pro-life movement by serving and valuing every life. Save the Storks partners with pregnancy centers all across the U.S. to own and operate a stork bus to offer free ultrasounds and pregnancy tests to women in unplanned pregnancies. Stork buses park near college campuses, abortion clinics, shopping centers, and serve rural communities that lack medical care. Save the Storks is pleased to be the sponsor of the Ministry Watch podcast. For more information about our life-saving organization and how we partner with pregnancy resource centers around the country, go to savethestorks.com. That's savethestorks.com. Welcome back. I'm Natasha Smith with my co-host Warren Smith, and you're listening to the Ministry Watch podcast. Now, we like to use this last segment as a sort of lightning round of shorter news briefs. What do you have first? Well, the last couple of years have included several major Christian ministries and institutions voluntarily resigning their membership in the Evangelical Council for Financial Accountability. When that happens, we normally report on it. Um, the latest is Wheaton College, which resigned on May 31st. It's uh, you know one of the best-known 
institutions of Christian higher learning in the country, about 25 miles west of Chicago. And uh, when they resigned their membership in the ECFA, I kind of took notice because, number one, they joined way back in 1980. So they were one of the very first members of the ECFA. And they joined, as I just mentioned, a number of other organizations, such as the Gospel Coalition and the Christian Research Institute, that have also um, voluntarily resigned their membership. Now, a membership, a, a spokesman rather for the school said that other mandatory reporting requirements guarantee that Wheaton already has high levels of accountability and transparency, and he suggested that membership in the ECFA was no longer worth the cost to the organization. Our next story is one that a lot of people thought they'd never hear. Yeah, that's right, including me, i got to be honest with you, and it's the story of Nason Joaquim Garcia, who's the leader of a Mexican megachurch called La Luz del Mundo, or the Light of the World. He had been facing child rape and other charges, and he admitted just days before going to trial that he had, in fact, sexually abused three girls. Garcia is 53 years old. He pleaded guilty on Friday in Los Angeles Superior Court to three counts of sex crimes involving minors. He had faced jury selection on Monday in his trial on those charges that included child rape, human trafficking, in order to produce child pornography. A lot of people had thought that Garcia was untouchable. Yeah, Garcia, I did, including me, like I said, uh, Garcia is or was the leader of a church founded by his grandfather, but it has now more than 5 million people worldwide. He was considered an apostle of Jesus Christ by the members of that church who could lead worshipers to salvation. These beliefs clearly take this church outside of the boundaries of biblical Christianity, but it had been enormously effective at attracting followers in Spanish-speaking portions of California and also in Mexico as well as other parts of the world. And Garcia himself had acquired a near-godlike status with the members of the church. So this development, the fact that he is now pleaded guilty, is really important indeed. In fact, he faces more than 16 years in prison He's considered a flight risk, too, I should add, so he remains in jail until the sentencing takes place. Who's in our ministry spotlight this week? Well, this week we uh, decided to spotlight the Fellowship of Christian Athletes, or the FCA. It was incorporated in 1954, so it's been around a long time. Oklahoma is its original home, and its uh, mission is to lead every coach— athlete, and all whom they influence to a growing relationship with Jesus Christ and his church. Why did you pick this ministry to highlight this week? Well, for one thing, we focus on so many ministries that are misbehaving that we wanted to, you know, maybe spotlight one that was doing some things right. Uh, FCA is one of the highest rated ministries in our database, and they also do something that I would like other ministries to consider. Now, they are concerned about religious liberty, so they petitioned the IRS back a few years ago in 2014 to reclassify themselves as a church. Wait, I thought that you thought that was a bad idea. Well, I do think that's a bad idea. Most ministries who do that stop releasing their Form 990s to the public, and I definitely think that's not good. 
But in the case of FCA, even though they have been reclassified as a church, they continue to voluntarily release their Form 990s. I think that's an elegant solution that takes into account the transparency concerns that I have, but also protects them if their rights as a Christian organization are ever challenged. So I actually applaud this decision. I should also mentioned that Focus on the Family has adopted a similar position. They are technically classified as a church, but they voluntarily release their Form 990s to the public. What's the question of the week? Well, our question of the week is this. Is it legal for a registered charity to automatically increase your monthly donation? And what's the answer? Well, believe it or not, the answer is complicated. If you agree to let the ministry do it, then they can. Who would agree to that? Well, you'd be surprised at what's in the small print on donation websites. You might have already agreed to it and just don't know it. Um, Now, that said, my advice to ministry leaders is don't do that. Even if it's legal, it's a distasteful practice that hurts the integrity of the organization. And if you're a donor, I should add that you can always opt out of such an arrangement. Just call the ministry and say, hey, listen, I don't want to give money to you anymore, or I don't want you to increase my donation. What might be legal may nevertheless uh, impugn the integrity of the organization overall. So I wouldn't recommend this trick to any charity that relies on the trust of its donors to raise funds. And after taking the holiday week off, Ministries Making a Difference is back. Yeah, it is. And this week we feature Portland Youth for Christ and the Fort Recovery Church of the Nazarene in Northern Ohio, which is in the midst of what it's calling a 1,000 bag project. They are sewing bags from recycled fabrics, and then they're stuffing those bags with Bibles and other materials to send to Africa through the Christian Literature for Africa Association. And there's one more ministry I'd like to mention, the Philadelphia Dream Center recently negotiated the purchase of a 50,000-square-foot complex to house its expanding ministry. I should say that the Philly Dream Center runs a food truck program, real rehabilitation center for men, living quarters for missionaries. It's really an amazing ministry and part of a network of dream centers that are springing up in cities all across the country. Do you have any final thoughts before we go today? Well, I just want to remind everybody that June 30th is the end of our fiscal year. So if you'd like to help us have a strong finish to the year, uh, just go to ministrywatch.com and hit the donate button at the top of the page. And if you do give during the month of June, we'll send you a copy of a book that I co-wrote with Christian journalism legend Marvin Alasky called Prodigal Press, Confronting the Anti-Christian Bias of the American News Media. The producers for today's program are Rich Rosal and Jeff McIntosh. We get database and other technical support from Kathy Guttard, Stephen DeBerry, Emily Kern, Rod Pitzer, and Casey Suddeth. Writers who contributed to today's program include Donald Kramer, Peter Smith, Brian Malley, Yonat Shimron, Steve Raby, Kim Roberts, Ann Stike, Bob Smetana, and Christina Darnell. You've been listening to the Ministry Watch Podcast. Until next time, may God bless you. 